Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Joe Belknap Wall. Hey, you over there! If you're gonna be pissing on each other, use the plastic! <laughs> that and more. But before that, I just want to remind you that we have this fantastic deal with adamandeve.com. And Risk fans have been raving about it for years. Whenever you find yourself needing more condoms or lube, or lingerie, or anything like that, you know, instead of having to go to the store, Adam and Eve has you covered. They have thousands and thousands of products, is some very high-end merchandise, and some very affordable stuff. You know, some stuff doesn't have to be so high-end. It all comes in a plain package. They have that 90-day risk-free return policy. And right now, if you go to adamandeve.com, you'll get 50% of just about any item. When you do, you'll get a free sex swing <laughs> and free shipping. You just enter the code RISK at the checkout. That's R-I-S-K at adamandeve.com for 50% off just about any item, a free sex swing and free shipping on the entire order. That's the offer code RISK at adamandeve.com. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison and this is of course john coltrane behind me now we're calling this week's episode live from baltimore this is a recent trip we made to baltimore three stories a real emotional roller coaster of an evening that night in baltimore something funny something frustrating 
And the third story, the final story, is, my goodness, quite a journey, quite a challenging experience retold in that story. There's abuse in that story, psychological, sexual. So it is typical of what we do on this show is to encourage people to share as freely as they possibly can manage to share. I was reading over the weekend this um, excerpt from a theologian. His name's Paul Tillich. And he said, the first duty of love is to listen. And man, I loved that. What the world needs right now is love. The worst that could happen for us is for people to be hating and fearing others more and hearing others less. We all need to be heard. And so we all need to be hearing. And when you just quiet down and listen to someone, even someone with wildly different experiences from your own, whether those experiences are hilarious or really depressing or beautiful or terrifying or bewildering, when you really listen, something shifts in you, doesn't it? You can empathize with almost anyone if you listen to them speak from the heart about what they've lived through. And that works best when the speaker is not holding back, not sugarcoating, not trying to adjust their story to fit into the same mood or tone as the story you heard prior, not second-guessing how the listeners might prefer that they speak. (laughs) And that's a delicate balance to maintain sometimes. I got this lovely email recently. I want to give a shout out. Uh, She deserves a shout out because she's one of our Patreon patrons who's giving whatever it is, $25 or more a month. So I'm supposed to give her a shout out anyway. (laughs) But she wrote this beautiful email. Her name is Suzanne Gallant. And she wrote, uh, I've been listening to your show for about six months. Nothing has ever made me feel more connected to other people. The show lights up my heart and gives me permission to be myself. So, there you go. You have a remarkable life experience, and it means a lot to you. So you share about it. And then, for someone listening, just the experience of listening to you talk about that experience might be the beginning of an important life experience for that listener. (laughs) And so that's why we're here. All right, let's get to Baltimore, folks. We're going to start with a wonderful guy. He has been on the show The Stoop. And if you've never been to The Stoop in Baltimore, get on over to it. It's a great storytelling show they have there in town themselves. In fact, you can also find their podcast at The Stoop Storytelling Series. Anyway, you will find Joe Belknap Wall at joebelknapwall.com. So here is Joe Belknap Wall right now with a story we call Been There.
The guidance counselor looked at me, and he had that kind of look he always had when he looked at me and said, Mr. Wall, where do you see yourself in 20 years? What's your career aspiration? And I said, I want to be a glamorous criminal. And he kind of looked over his glasses the way he always did and made a little note that I found out years later was actually in my student record and said, attention-seeking, and he'd underlined it twice and circled it. (laughs) Now, the tragedy of this was I really kind of did want to be a glamorous criminal uh, because I aspired to be a badass. I was a little, slightly built, polite child I got bullied, and I got kind of made fun of, and I thought, you know what, one day I'll show them I'm going to be a glamorous criminal, or something equally badass. I didn't make much progress at it because I don't have a lot of conviction in my badassery. When I wanted an earring, I got an ear cuff, and when I wanted to take up smoking, I didn't want to get cancer, so I would just light cigarettes and carry them. And I would hope that nobody ever noticed that I was just tapping them out and tapping them out, but they never actually went into my mouth. And as school went on, I was increasingly unsuccessful at being kind of the odd cool kid. I just was the odd surreal kid. By the time I got to the point where I figured out what my real oddity was, which was that I liked dudes... I had been reading up, and I came out, and I read a bunch of Gide and John Retchy and, and Joe Orton's diaries, and I'm like, this is it. This is my ticket to being a badass. I'm going to be a big, crazy, gay badass, just like in everything I ever read. <laughs> and I had this whole love affair with, I'm going to live on the margins of society, and I'm going to be kind of spooky and dangerous and carry my cigarettes that never go in my mouth, and... <laughs> I'm going to switch to Galoises so they'll be extra French. But the trouble was, and this was right in the heart of the Reagan years, so it was an ugly, bad time to be gay. But unfortunately for me, when I came out, everybody was supportive and approved. And I told my parents, and they were proud of me, that I had felt so comfortable that I could share this thing about myself and I came out at school and everybody said well that explains it and you're really cool and we like you and this was pissing me off because I wanted to be a badass I eventually ended up uh, quitting school and running away from home to get away from the loving supportive environment that was destroying me and into a properly uh, sleazy sideline sort of area I was in Prince George's County, but not far enough into it. I was staying in a room with uh, roommates in College Park that I had found at the Sexual Minority Youth Assistance League, which was SMILE, the, uh, the gay youth thing. So I couldn't even be radical in my gay youthery. I had to go to SMILE. But the very first time I went to a gay bar, it was a world changer because we went to this place called the Chesapeake House, which was a sleazy little strip club in D.C. And the first time we went in there, my, uh, my two roommates and I, I'm looking and I'm like, are they taking their pants off? Are, are they taking their drawers off? And they're like, what? It's a strip club. That's what they do. I'm like, are they allowed to take everything off? And they're like, well, they leave their socks on so you can put the money in there. And I thought, oh my God, I can take my pants off. I have a pathway to being a badass. (laughs) So as soon as I turned 18, I applied at a, uh, I didn't really apply, just 
schmucked up to the bartender at a bar that is now roughly under home plate at National Stadium, which I point out to everybody that I know whenever you're at a Nationals game, my penis has been out at home plate. (laughs) And the trouble was, I never really shook my not being a badass persona. And you know, when I was a kid and everybody was looking at things like, hey, we were watching Charlie's Angels the other night, and I'm like, I was listening to a fascinating thing on NPR. And in their lunches, they would have a Coke wrapped up in aluminum foil because our dumb parents thought this would keep them cool. Well, I had a thermos of herbal tea, and I had Julia Child's book, which I observed like the Bible. And unfortunately, when I decided to become a badass stripper, And picture me young and pretty, unless, of course, you like bears, in which case, picture all of this. (laughs) But, unfortunately, I had learned to dance watching Twyla Tharp on PBS. And watching the movie Sweet Charity over and over and over. And I was really in a phase where I was a huge fan of Harry Parch, who is this experimental musician working with 38 tones per octave and it's very hard to listen to music and when I would get up on the bar at this club where the ceiling was so low it was already hard to dance because you had to kind of crouch and normally they hired shorter dancers but I'd been persuasive so they put me in so I would go and I would put on the tape of the music that I would be and it would be you know this bizarre thing about a death in bar stove, somebody intoning poetry, and then I would do these twilotharpy dances while crouching so that I wouldn't hit my head on the ceiling. And it turned out to be the shortest career as a stripper because one evening, while passing one of the other dancers who had left a deposit on the uh, bar of a very slippery nature, I got my foot in it and I skated all the way to the end of the bar, flew off, knocked myself unconscious on the brass rail on the way down and thus ended my career as a stripper. So at that point, I basically shifted into self-preservation mode. I got a job as a high security government subcontractor and a lot of years went by where I was not remotely a badass. But I had talked my way into a weird position with the American Visionary Art Museum that I hold to this day, which is I am their disco dancing spiritual figurehead. (laughs) So when they have the kinetic sculpture race every year, I dress up as either a Franciscan monk or a nun or a Buddhist monk or whatever. I give a brief homily, I disco dance wildly, and then I ride a tiny bicycle 20 miles through Baltimore. It's it's not exactly badass, but it is kind of at least distinct. And I had done one of these, and this man came up to me, and he sort of had that presence to him, and he came up and he flipped a card out of his fingers like a magician, you know, that kind of way where it just pops out, and he goes, here's my card. I I couldn't help but notice you're a very good dancer for a fat guy. (laughs) Years had passed. So I took the card, and I said, well, thank you. And he said... Have you ever considered getting into the world of novelty stripping? And I said, no, because I was unaware there was a world of novelty stripping. (laughs) And as he explained it to me, it was basically being the hilarious version of stripper tropes that people are normally familiar with. And what would happen is there would be an office party and some poor victim in the office whose birthday it was, usually a woman but occasionally a man, would be in this office lunchroom and they would say, okay, Debbie, we got you a stripper. 
And I'd push play on my boombox, and it would start playing either police siren sounds if I was coming in to be hot, embarrassing cop, or uh, any variety of other sort of music. And I'd learn not to use Harry Parch. And I would come out in just the most insane tiny uniforms, either tiny UPS driver uniform or tiny janitor uniform with my butt crack all hanging out and I'd be like, hey ladies, this is all for you. And it was very humiliating, except I did get a check at the end. It was in the course of this uh, part-time job where the guy who hired me called me up one day and he says, I got a job for you and I just want to tell you up front, this is not sexual. And you really don't introduce anything as not being sexual unless it pretty much is. <laughs> and he said, I've got a friend who's starting up a, uh, a series of slave auction themed bukkake parties at Firehouse Bingo Halls in Anne Arundel County. <laughs> and my thought is, this, this sounds kind of terrible, but this could make me a badass. <laughs> And at the time, I had a friend that I had kind of a crush on who was living the much kinkier sort of existence than me, and he explained to me what bukkake was, which is an interesting sexual practice named after a way of serving noodles in Japan by splashing sauce on them. And what it amounts to in a sexual sense is you have a large party, usually at an airport Ramada Inn, <laughs> and somewhere between 10 and 50 men get together and ejaculate on men, women, occasionally a stainless steel bowl for some reason. And this is all supposed to be very fun, and I, it doesn't sound like my cup of tea, largely because I'm a child of the Reagan years. In the Reagan years, when AIDS came around and everybody was dying, they were still kind of vague on what was going to give it to us. So the early messages I got as a teenager were, don't let anything fly at your face. <laughs> and don't get it in your mouth or your eyes, nostrils, ears, any holes at all. In fact, kind of just stay away from that stuff altogether. Kind of wrap yourself up. And so I had this deep in my core of understanding of the world, and I thought, oh my God, I... I'd be in a room full of people ejaculating all over men, women, and stainless steel bowls. I'm like, this makes me really uncomfortable, and therefore it must be badass. And on top of that, when I found out how much it paid, I was like, oh, I'm totally in. Now, I don't have to do anything, right? And the guy said, no, no, you don't have to do anything. You're going to be the MC. So basically, you're the hospitality at this event. I would be in charge of setting up events, telling people about the party, covering all the bases, and conducting one slave auction as part of it. And I thought, well, this does not really sound like my cup of tea, but it does sound kind of sleazy and gross and sad, which totally made me want to do it. So I did my preparations. I went to the thrift store. I prepared a new outfit that was this time not tiny because it was doing a different shtick then. I show up at the party, I drive there in my tiny four-door economy sedan, and I pull up in front of this firehouse bingo hall, and I am dressed, I think, perfectly appropriately for the part. But when I open the door, I realize I have made a grave mistake. Because I look around the room, and there are a lot of men in stages of undress, and leather, strappy, chromy, spiky, accessorized things, and I have worn a white suit. 
a white suit and a black string tie and white shoes and I've waxed my mustache and oh my God, I have dressed as Colonel Sanders. (laughs) And I instantly felt like A, the biggest racist in the world for assuming that that was the appropriate thing to wear, and B, someone who is never going to be a badass because you really don't dress up as Colonel Sanders when you want to do something badass, but I just had to keep with it. The organizer of that particular event came up and looked me up and down and he goes, what are you wearing? And I said, I kind of got the theme a little wrong. I'm really sorry. And he said, there's nothing we can do about it. We just got to go. This guy was from Edgewater. Perfect Edgewater accent. (laughs) So he sets me up. He gives me a little card that's got the things. Amusingly, it's uh, kind of the schedule for the night, the sponsors to thank. (laughs) And uh, I come out and, you know, I'm kind of doing my best. So I get out and I'm up in front of the microphone and there's all these men in leather and various stages of undress and our center boys and I announce it I'm like hey welcome to our bukkake party and I'm just a little too festive but I gotta keep going with it so I say okay well welcome here's the run of the night here are some events we're gonna be doing we're gonna be doing an auction we're gonna be doing a free-for-all we have an open bar of Coors Light and other accessories. Uh, We have snack bar, um, and the management wants you to note, please wash your hands before you visit either of these. I just run down the basic thing. I conduct this auction, which is more clinical than I expect, but as soon as it's over, I'm like, oh, thank God. And as I'm backing away, have you ever been to a kid's party where somebody thought it would be a good idea to bring a whole case of silly string? It's a bit like that. It's a bit like a hundred people with silly string. And I run for the hills because I don't want any of that stuff flying in my direction. And I retreat to the back of the room over to the open bar and the snack bar. And I'm just kind of trying to get by and be a person. And I'm thinking, you know, I don't think I'm really built for proper badass existence because this is freaking me the hell out. But... Nobody's come back to the snack bar yet, so I stuff myself with pretzels and other things. I don't drink, so I'm kind of avoiding the punch bowls. But I start talking to the organizer, and he's sort of interestingly gossipy. He's just like, so, is this your first one of these? And I said, yeah, it's it's kind of a new thing for me. I'm trying to act like I'm kind of an old hand at this. And he goes, yeah, you're pretty good, except dressing up like whatever that is. And then we're talking about things like putting a radiator into a Toyota and lawn mowing tips, and it's all very casual except for this huge scene of ejaculation. And also, aside from the fact that periodically the organizer would look away from me and he'd go and point and go, Hey, you over there! If you're going to be pissing on each other, use the plastic! Just before he turns back to me and says, You know, the last time I left this place smelling a pee, my mom was so mad. I don't remember much of the rest of the evening because some part of my brain permanently fried at that point. But I just sat there thinking calm, relaxing thoughts about a more glamorous life of crime. And as the evening wound down and everybody's leaving, I was so stressed out, even though I don't drink, I said, you know, I'm going to hit the punch bowl. So I went out and got myself a little solo cup of punch and I'm kind of relaxing and it's cool and everybody's leaving and I'm talking to the organizer and he says, 
yeah, we did a good take tonight, and he's counting out bills, and he gives me a bunch of them, which makes me real happy. And I'm just finishing off my drink, and he goes, what punch bowl did you get that from? I said, the, the red one? Oh, my God, there's not... No. He goes, no, it's not that. But you got out of the red one? And I said, yeah, there's something wrong with that. He goes, no. <laughs> Nothing to worry you. Anyway, hope to see you at the next one. Well, I get out of there, and I kind of go shambling off to my car, and I'm like, wow, I made a big chunk of money. This is nice. I do feel kind of dirty and badass. This is cool. Tell that guidance counselor one of these days, which weird thing to announce to somebody that you haven't seen in 30 years. Hey, guess what I did? And I get into my tiny four-door economy sedan, and I have to drive roughly eight miles to my home. And I get maybe a half mile before I get a very distinct sense that the streetlights are following me. (laughs) And I'm looking in the mirror, and they're behind me, and they're kind of bobbing along, and it's like the wires have gotten attached to my car, and they're just trailing along, and I'm thinking, they're going to kill me. (laughs) Those streetlights are coming to kill me. And the thing is, I have enough peace of mind to realize that's not actually true. What's actually true is that there was something in that punch. And it was something in that punch that had affected my thinking to the point where I realized that there was something in the punch, and yet I knew I was not going to be able to stop until I got home because the streetlights would kill me. And for some reason, I thought, well, if I can get to my house, you know, streetlights can't go in there because that would be ridiculous. So my thinking at this point is I have to get home. I don't want to drive because drunk driving is wrong. But I come up with this great idea. I'm just going to drive home real slow and on the shoulder. And the key problem with this is there is not a shoulder on the road in that part of Maryland. And what I actually did is I drove my tiny four-door economy sedan through every front lawn in Anne Arundel County at a speed roughly equivalent of a riding mower. While crying. So if you were to look out of your house at two in the morning, you would see a tiny four-door economy sedan very slowly running over your mailbox and your gazing ball and your bird bath. And in one particularly difficult encounter, an upturned buried bathtub with a concrete Virgin Mary statue in it. As I yelled out the window, I'm so sorry. I will never do this again. And at some point, I just forgot how I got home. I woke up surrounded by Colonel Sanders' costume. And I looked out the window, and of course my car was not there. So I had to have this kind of meditative moment where I'm thinking, I'm like, project yourself into the past. Where is the car? And the whole time I'm thinking, I've killed somebody. I have probably killed somebody. This is why they tell you not to drink and drive. 
But in a little spark, it comes into my head like Tinkerbell settling on top of me. And I'm like, oh, I know exactly where it is. And I go to the racetrack and then around behind the racetrack to the trailer park where my high school girlfriend, Lurleen, had lived. (laughs) And my car is parked at her trailer entirely on top of a Harley. And as I'm very quietly trying to get the door open so I can back off of this Harley and get away, the door to the trailer flies open with a sound like somebody clattering two cookie sheets together. And this guy comes out and says, Is that your car? And I said, Yeah. Yeah, it's my car. He goes, You're parked on my bike. And I said, I'm really sorry. I'm here. Let me give you my insurance info. And he's, nah, it's just going to give it character. Help me put it back up. <laughs> so I get, a, I get up there. We lift up this beat up old Harlow. And he's like, what were you doing anyway? It's like three in the morning. You're out there yelling and hollering and throwing stuff. And then you just ran away screaming. <laughs> And I said, well, back in the 80s, my girlfriend Lurleen lived in this trailer. Well, I was the MC for a uh, slave auction-themed bukkake party at this firehouse bingo hall. I'm pretty sure I did horse tranquilizers, and he looks at me and goes, mm, been there. He goes, but you made it back. That's badass. And I thought, I may not be badass now, but I was once. Thank you. The bar has assured me that there are very few horse tranquilizers in your drinks. Oh my gosh. I was I was at a party in the 90s. It was all gay men at this party in Tribeca at this beautiful beautiful penthouse apartment. Everyone was very well dressed. Someone started passing around horse tranquilizers right there at the meal. And it was the funniest thing because I am very very I'm a little bit fragile with some of those sorts of things. I took just one little toot, and within about 30 seconds, I said to the person sitting next to me, I was like, I'm just gonna use the bathroom. And I got up and started walking away from the table. Everyone was so engaged in the conversation that they didn't even notice that I was only about 10 steps away from the table when I started to have to crawl. I crawled the rest of the way to the bathroom. And once I got to the bathroom, I was like, it's so burning hot in here. Took off all of my clothes to get away from the burning hellfire that was all about me and just passed out. So five minutes later, they're just having fun conversation. They're like, where is Kevin? And someone's like, Jesus Christ. He died going to the bathroom. Oh, my goodness. So keep me away. Keep me away from the horse tranquilizers. 
Okay, folks, we're ready for our last two stories. Our last two stories are a little bit more on the serious side. It's been a joy to work with our next couple of storytellers. The first, uh, she has done stories at Story District in D.C. If you've never seen that show... Another totally fabulous show. We've done a little bit of work with them over there at times, too, partnered up every now and then. She has some other stories that you can find on YouTube. Please welcome to the stage, Rachel Hinton! Of all the things that I have ever wanted in my life, the thing that I have always wanted the most is just to be good. Which doesn't sound very exciting, it doesn't sound like it has a lot of teeth, but the truth is being good and being kind and not being bad felt a lot harder for me than it felt for a lot of other people. Other people could sort of wake up and live their lives and stumble through the day and be fine, but I always had the sense that if I just wasn't vigilant and just let myself be myself, that just chaos and pain and suffering would ensue. I remember this one time when I was about five, I was in the kitchen with my grandmother and she handed me this dish. It was like this retro dish, it was green, it was from the 1950s. And she said that it was my mom's favorite dish when she was a kid. And I was so excited that as soon as she passed it over to me, I immediately dropped it and it just shattered into like a million pieces on the floor. And my grandmother was really great about it. She didn't you know, yell at me or anything, but you could kind of see that flash of just like loss and sadness on her face. And it felt like that was kind of the encapsulation for me. Like, if I just wasn't vigilant, if I didn't pay constant attention, I was just one slip away from accidentally doing really irreparable harm. So that led me to be a pretty good kid. I got great grades, and I got all the awards, and everybody told me how great it was. But it didn't stick because I knew what was underneath, and I was just this close away to doing a lot of harm that people wouldn't see. So fast forward, and I'm 24 years old, and I'm in a new city, and I'm getting ready to start this job at a new high school. I'm just in a really bad place, and I decide, you know, maybe this is the point in my life where it would be a good idea to go to therapy. You could Google somebody random, but I decided that I was actually going to get some recommendations. And so there was this woman who was in private practice, but who volunteered like one or two days a week at our school. I'd never met her before, but I knew her name was Monica. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to go to Monica's office. I'm going to get some recommendations, and I'm going to go to therapy. And I walked into her office, and the first thing I noticed was that she was a lot like prettier than I expected her to be. Like <laughs> the therapist that I had met in the course of my life always looked like kind of like middle-aged junior high art teachers, <laughs> you know, like broom skirts, like kind of like a Professor Trulani kind of vibe for the Harry Potter fans. And that was not her. Like she was just very sleek and very put together. And she kind of had this like Cheshire cat vibe where I was kind of like both super intimidated, but I also like really wanted her to like me. And that combination led to me being incredibly awkward in our interaction. So instead of just going in and asking for names, I spend the next 10 minutes just doing total word vomit of all of the things of my life and all the things I wanted to work out in therapy and how upset I was. And she's just sitting there and she's nodding and then I just book it and I leave. And I think about it for a couple of days, and like this is like a colleague, right? Like this is somebody who works in the same place that I do. And so I shoot her this email, and I'm like, hey, you know, I'd love to grab a cup of coffee with you, and thank you for the names that you sent my way, and, and just get to know you a little bit as a coworker. And she wrote back almost immediately, and she was like, hey, I've actually been thinking about you too. Maybe instead of getting coffee, you know, there's this wine place that just opened. 
why don't we just get a glass of wine on Thursday night? And I was like, sounds like a great idea. <laughs> so we meet up, and as soon as I walk in, this place has kind of like a super romantic vibe. We sit down and we start talking, but we don't talk about work. We're talking about our families and you know where we grew up and our stories, and we talk for like two hours, and I'm realizing that this feels like a date which is weird because I had never been on a date with a woman before, <laughs> but I liked it and I was really vibing with this conversation that we were having and about two hours in, she kind of puts her hand on my arm and she says, hey, by the way, how old are you? And I was like, I'm 24. And her eyes kind of widen a little bit and I went, why, how old are you? And she goes, I'm 38. And there was just this pause. <laughs> and I went, oh, I thought you were like closer to 30. And she's like, yeah, I thought you were like closer to 30. <laughs> And then there's this other pause, and it definitely solidified for me that two things were happening. Number one, this was definitely a date. And B, we were kind of doing our internal battle to see if we felt okay about dating somebody who was 15 years apart from us in age. Now, I don't know how many of you in the room are fans of like terrible lesbian movies, which is basically every lesbian movie that is made. <laughs> But the next couple of weeks totally felt like one of those, like older, experienced, like lesbian therapist and her like young, wide-eyed, like straight ingenue. And we just spent like three days in this like sexed up stupor, you know? <laughs> and we're talking about just all this stuff and we're bonding and we're like laughing and we're crying and we're fucking and it's amazing. I just was completely exhausted and infatuated. <laughs> A couple weeks later, it's uh, time for kind of all the holiday parties, and we're kind of officially a couple at this point. I start going to some holiday parties with her, and she was kind of a very prominent therapist in her field. She was on a lot of boards, and so my social life had basically gone from drinking like PBR out of solo cups by myself <laughs> to going to these catered parties at these like very nice homes. And I remember I was at one of them, and I was kind of standing at the corner, like getting a drink, and I'm looking at Monica, and she's just you know, gliding across the room and she's socializing with people and she's so charming. And this woman that I don't even really know just kind of sees me looking at her and she kind of whispers in my ear, she goes, look, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but I'm pretty sure like half the room is a little bit in love with your girlfriend. I took it as a huge compliment and I just kind of went, I, I know. And it felt just like a dream that I was the person that got to be with her. A couple weeks after that, I had had this trip planned. So I'd moved to a new city, and I had this kind of reunion planned with a bunch of my old colleagues um, in a different city. It was in early February. I told Monica about it, and she was like, hey, that kind of conflicts with like our two-month anniversary. Do you really have to go? And I was like, I do. Like, you know, my really good friends, I haven't seen them in a long time. She goes, okay, okay, I get it. She reaches over, and she takes her watch off of her wrist, and she puts it on my wrist, and she says, I want you to take this with you as a reminder that you know, even when we're far apart, I just want us to stay connected. And I was like, oh my God, she really likes me. This is amazing. <laughs> so I go to this city. I go meet up with my friends. And we all kind of have different relationships with electronic devices, but I am definitely somebody who's not so good on them. Like, if I'm with you in person, like, I am with you in, in person and can kind of ignore my phone. And so it's like one in the morning, and I'm with two of my best friends. We've been talking for hours, and my phone rings, and it's Monica. And I pick it up, and I'm like, hey, babe, how's it going? She just goes, where the fuck are you? I've been trying to get a hold of you for like six hours. And I looked down at my phone, and she was right. I had a couple missed emails and like five text messages. And 
I just went, I'm so sorry. Like, I've just been caught up and I wasn't paying attention to my phone. And she cuts me off and she's like, it's loud. Where are you? Are you drunk? Who are you with? Are you trying to fuck someone? She's yelling and I'm sitting across the table from my friends and they can actually, even though the bar is loud, they can actually hear her yelling at me through the phone. And so I get embarrassed and so I step up and I kind of walk out and we have this terrible fight outside and she's yelling at me and I'm yelling at her and we actually didn't talk, not even the whole next day, but not until the day after when I came home. And at that point, you know, we were a little bit more level-headed, things had kind of calmed down a little bit and she goes, hey, I've, I've really been thinking about our interaction and you know, I feel like I see this kind of thing in couples therapy a lot and I really feel like the root cause here was that you know, there was an expectation that you would really be in strong touch and in strong communication and you weren't. And so as a result, I think I felt really insecure and I overreacted and it was our anniversary and that made a lot of sense to me. She's right. Like I'd kind of set this expectation that I would be in touch and I wasn't. And I totally apologized. And I was like, I get it. We'll set more clear expectations. I'll be more in touch in the future. And a couple weeks later, some of my kind of new friends from work had suggested that I join them for this day trip that they were going on. I ran it by Monica and she was like, you know, I'm still feeling a little hurt about how not communicative you are on the last trip, but why don't we go out of town for the weekend instead? And I was like, that sounds like a great idea. And we did, and we had an amazing time, and things were really great. The thing about Monica is she was really good at helping me understand what adult relationships were supposed to look like, because I'd never really been in one. Sometimes it was a little confusing, because some of the messages I got didn't make a lot of sense to me. For example, this one time we were in a fight, and I had a big work meeting the next day, and I was trying to go to bed. I kind of cut the fight off early, and so she stood over me, and she banged pots and pans because she said that it was actually really toxic to go to bed if you were angry with one another. Or this one time, this guy who was a long-term friend of mine, we'd known each other for years, he sent me a text message with a winky face in it, and she was like, you know, part of being a good partner is really prioritizing your partner's needs, and so you should really prioritize the fact that this makes me uncomfortable as opposed to this acquaintance who's not going to be in your life, and maybe you shouldn't talk to him anymore. And then the other thing is she said, you know, I know we've been fighting a lot and things have been really hard, but it would actually just be a lot better if we moved in together because this is really about your attachment issues, you know, and you keep pushing and you keep pulling. And if you can just really get in with both feet, we're going to move beyond this and we're going to be in a really, really good spot. And so I did all the things that she suggested because, I mean, after all, she was the expert. Not only was she more experienced, but this was literally what she did for a living. And so we moved in, but the fights didn't really get better. They got worse. And also, like, my memory got worse because when we would fight about stuff, I would feel like when we were in the argument, she would be the one that called me a bitch and she would be the one that threw a throw pillow in my direction. But when we would debrief it later, she would tell me that she really forgave me for doing those things. It really confused me because I was so sure that she had called me a bitch, but she was so earnest and she was so calm that I get mad, you know, I, I forget things. Like, maybe I had kind of lost track. And so I got really obsessed about like who said what and who did what. And so I actually asked her once if we could record our fights. <laughs> like on the voice memo app on the phone. Like if a fight was coming, be like, hey, can I just tape this for a second? Like, is that okay? Because in my mind, I was like, it feels like we spend just as much time like figuring out what happened in a fight as we do in the fight. Let's just have the objective record. We'll be good to go. <laughs> and she looked at me with just this like look of disgust. And she was like, that is bizarre. What are you going to like play recordings of our fights? Like, and I was like, no, it's just for us. And she was like, I have literally never heard of anybody doing that before. And that makes me feel really uncomfortable that would you even suggest it? 
And when she said it, I was like, you're right. Like, I've also not heard of that. Like, that's not a thing that my friends that are married talk about. So it's me. You're good. But the thing that I loved the most about Monica was I felt like she really saw me in totality in a way that nobody else did. So she really saw my good stuff. She always told me how smart I was and how kind I was and how hardworking I was and loyal I was, like my friends did. But she also saw the stuff that I felt like I always tricked my friends on. She also saw that I was selfish and irresponsible and angry and cruel. And she loved me anyway. And that's intimacy, right? Is having somebody see all the stuff about you and love you just the same. And she always pushed me to be better, and I really appreciated that about her. And one area that I had to work on in the irresponsibility front is that Monica had this dog named Peanut. And Peanut was a little bit of a terrorist. <laughs> uh, she's one of those dogs that, like, if she could get into anything, she absolutely would. And so you always had to leave bags on the table and not on chairs because Peanut would totally get to them. And this one day, I came home from work, and I kind of threw my backpack on the chair, and I ran to meet Monica for dinner. And when we came home for dinner a few hours later, we saw just like tin foil all over the ground. And Peanut had gotten into my bag and had eaten something. And Monica looks at me, and she just goes, what was in the tin foil? And I said, it was a slice of cinnamon raisin bread. Like, I bought it for lunch. I didn't eat it. And she goes, raisins can be toxic to dogs. And the color just drains from her face. And things just moved really quickly from that point. We put some solution in peanut. We're trying to make her throw up. And I'm on the phone with the vet. We throw her in the car. And I'm feeling just devastated and scared and awful. But I'm trying to keep it together because this is not my time. Like, this is not a time for my emotions. And so it's all business. We get to the vet. And Peanuts seems to be doing fine. And the vet sort of says, yeah, like, I mean, raisins can be not so good for, like, certain breeds of dogs, but, like, your dog seems fine, so, like, I think you're good to go. Just, you know, be careful next time. And we get in the car, and now that we know that things are good and the dog is fine, I just burst into tears, and I just start apologizing and saying, I'm so sorry, I can't even imagine that I left that out, and she won't even look at me. She's just completely stone-faced, and she's driving down the street. And we get to the house, and I think, like, maybe she just wants to wait till we're back in the apartment, and I keep trying, and she just won't look at me. And just this panic and this pain is rising within me because I almost killed my girlfriend's dog, and she won't forgive me, and she won't look at me. And so I just start crawling on all fours, and I'm just covered in snot and tears, and I'm just begging for her to say that she forgives me and that it was an accident and it was okay. And she doesn't, and she just goes to bed, and it was more terrifying than any fight that we had ever had. And we wake up the next day, and I get ready to take Peanut on her morning walk. And Monica says, hey, we should probably talk for a second. And she says, you know, I know that you take your phone on walks a lot, and you sometimes make calls when you walk Peanut. And I think that last night really proved that you're really not so great at multitasking. And you already almost made her sick really once, this one time. And so I think from now on, when you walk her, you should just leave your phone here with me so that you can fully focus on walking her and make sure that she doesn't get in any trouble or she doesn't hurt herself because, you know, I just don't know if I can trust you with her anymore. And I remember thinking that that was a crazy request. Like, I remember thinking, like, that's kind of nuts. Like, I'm a grown-ass woman. Like, I can walk a dog and have a phone. And yet, at the same time, I was aware that she was kind of right. I had been irresponsible, and I wasn't paying attention. And lucky, she has this one breed. But, like, I could have killed her dog. And so it was fair. And I said, okay. And that was kind of the last 
string I had attaching me. It was kind of the last consistent contact I had with a lot of my friends were those calls that we had on these walks. I wish I could say that things kind of got better from there, but they just got harder and the fighting started happening more frequently and we started fighting about money. Because you see, even though I was racking up more and more credit card debt trying to buy restaurant trips and trips out of town and tickets, Monica said that I hadn't really contributed to the things that were in our home because all of our furnishings were things that she had already had. And she kind of pointed to the bath mat in our bathroom and she said, you know, this has been tattered and old for months now and you haven't even thought to replace anything. You just expect me to replace everything in this house. You don't even love me enough to buy me a bath mat. And I was like, that seems fair. I can get you a bath mat. I told her that I would get her one and she said, and be sure it's a nice one, you know, go to Walmart, go to like Bed Bath & Beyond, you know, get something decent. And I was like, got it. I will go to Bed Bath & Beyond tomorrow. I will get you a bath mat. It sounds crazy, but I really appreciated the sort of directive feedback because I was like, you know, I'm not perfect yet, but if I'm a little kinder, if I'm a little more considerate, if I'm a little more patient, I'll get there. I'll eventually be good enough that I just won't be bad anymore. And getting a bath mat is so easy. I can do that and it'll just get me closer to being this good person who's not dangerous and who's not bad anymore. And the next day at work was kind of crazy and I came home and I shut the door and I realized that I'd forgotten to get the bath mat. And this just wave of anxiety raced over me because she was often home about an hour after I was from work and I just realized that I still had time. So I rushed out of the house and I run to the car and I just start zigging and zagging through the streets to get to Bed Bath & Beyond. I park and I run into the store and I'm running into the aisle and I find a really nice, good, high quality bath mat and I get to the line because there's always a long line at Bed Bath & Beyond. And I go up to someone at the front of the line and I just say, can I go in front of you? It's an emergency. <laughs> And they look at this woman just holding a bath mat and they're super confused because there's no such thing as a bath mat emergency. Like there's lots of emergencies, but like a bath mat emergency is not one of them. And they're like not letting me go and I'm starting to get more and more panicked because she's on her way home and if she comes home, then it's going to be a fight and it's not just going to be a fight about a bath mat, it's going to be a fight about who I am and how bad I am and how I can't be trusted. And so eventually somebody lets me get in front of them in line and I throw my stuff in the car and I'm driving home and I'm zigging and zagging again and I pull up, I go up to our apartment and I unlock the door and I open the door and she hasn't gotten home yet. And I throw the bath mat in the bathroom and my impulse was to rip off the tag because that's what you do when you buy a bath mat. But I knew, I was like, she's going to check the tag and so I don't need to rip it off just yet because I want her to know that I did exactly what she asked me to. And about 90 seconds later, she comes home and first thing she does is she walks into the bathroom and she checks the tag. And we had a great night. I mean, we had dinner and we talked about our days and it was easy and it was wonderful. At the end of the night, I was lying in bed and I had this just huge grin on my face because it was a little touch and go, but I had pulled it off. I did it. And I felt like I had just gotten away with the biggest crime in the world. I felt like Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption, holding my arms to the sky and covered in rain because even though I'd forgotten, I fixed it. And as soon as I was in that moment of just like happiness and bliss, the sense of horror just washed over me because I realized how far away I had gotten, that I felt this sort of freedom and joy for escaping the punishment of not picking up a bath mat on my way home. I wish I could tell you that that was it, that the next day I broke things off with Monica and we weren't a couple anymore, but the truth is it took a little longer. It took 
several attempts, it took several months, and eventually I actually ended up taking a job out of state because I kind of knew that that distance was necessary to kind of give me the mental break that I needed. But when I did move and I found myself in my new apartment that did not have many furnishings to start off with and I had my laptop open and I was doing some online shopping, I was on Anthropology's website and I saw this set of six bowls and they were green and they were retro and they were really cool and I decided to buy the set and I knew that it was okay even if I broke every single one. Thank you. Rachel Hinton! Oh my goodness! All right, all right, all right. Well, we have come to our last story of the night. And before we get to that, I just want to remind you all that we would love to come back to Baltimore as soon as possible. And in order to do that, what would really help is if you guys pitch us your stories or tell your friends to pitch us your stories. Remember, stories that are told on risk can be about anything. They can be funny. They can be very, very traumatic. They can be beautiful. They can be really sad. They're all over the map, just as long as they're about something that was really important to you, that was really emotional for you or really revealing to you. So you can find out more if you go to risk show.com slash submissions. There's a page there where there's a video and there's an audio thing. There's all sorts of instructions on how to pitch us. But yeah, we'd love to maybe have you up here. We coach people, help them prepare. So you might be able to be up here the next time we come to town. Our next storyteller, our final storyteller, this is our most serious, our most difficult story of the evening, a real situation that she survived here. She's a therapist. She's a social worker. She's also shared before at Story District in D.C. So it's a real joy to have her with us tonight. Please welcome to the stage, Shamila. Before we get started, I just want to say I'm not the kind of therapist she was talking about. (laughs) Okay, so please bear with me because this is not an easy story to tell, but I decided to do it today. So here I am, a pink girl in my own Barbie world, otherwise known as Bethesda, Maryland. I'm a seventh grader at the very exclusive and preppy Holton Arm School, and I like to rebel by wearing bright pink boxer shorts underneath my uniform skirt. I always, in a weird way, enjoy arguing with my brothers about whether we should watch The Empire Strikes Back or Ghostbusters on the VCR, which we get from HBO. I have a Siamese kitten named Coffee and about four friends. So you could say I'm not the most popular girl in the world, but I wasn't a nerd either. I was just somewhere in the middle. I loved books. And I was sheltered. I was very overprotected. I was not allowed to talk to boys. My parents would not drop me at the mall. And I still play with my dolls sometimes. So I was that kind of seventh grader. But the thing that kind of bothered me was that I was Pakistani-American. And my mom had an accent. And my name is Shamila, but I always used to wish that my name was Shannon or Sharon or even Stacy from the Babysitter's Club because there were no Shamilas out there. This was kind of like, you know, just the good stuff. 
the normal stuff. Even the being forced to take tennis lessons was the normal stuff. Then there was the weird stuff. Every summer, my parents would schlep us all to Pakistan, where they're from. Now, I got tired of going every summer. I wanted to go to camp like everyone else. But we had to go. Pakistan was where we got used to mosquitoes. We got used to heat. It's really hot there. Like, think about Arizona, Texas heat. We got used to the best Coca-Cola in the world in these bottles. If you've ever had Mexican Coke, it's like that. It's really good. Getting our stomachs upset because the water is not good. Having a grandmother that doesn't speak a word of English, so you can't really communicate with her. Having cousins who mock your American accent because you sound silly to them. Having your books made fun of. And then I had this very weird aunt, my mother's sister, Sheila. My mom, Hannah, is very vivacious. She laughs a lot. She uses her hands a lot. She has a lot to say. But my aunt Sheila is very monotone, very mean. They always make me eat my vegetables. Not a nice person. <laughs> my dad, Avzal, is very tall and very stoic. But my uncle, Ali, he's weird. He has this mustache and he's always trying to hug me and kiss me and grab me and get me away from my mom. Even as a little child, I just remember thinking, creepy. When I'm seven, we're in Pakistan, and the power goes out in my grandfather's huge sprawling bungalow, because there's a thunderstorm outside. And what do my brothers do, and my cousins, they all run out of the room and leave me there. So I'm crying in the dark, and my uncle comes in with a candle, creepy uncle, in the flickering candlelight, he holds my hand, and we walk down the stairs. And he turns to me, and he goes, who's your father? I'm seven years old, and I'm thinking, what a strange question. But then again, whenever I would go there, they would ask me strange questions, like, do you like America or Pakistan better? So I was used to the weird, strange questions. So I said, my dad's name is Avzal, and he works in Washington, D.C. And he looks at me, and he says, no, I am your father. And I kid you not, thunder went off in the background, and I was like, whoa. <laughs> so I was disturbed. So I went to my mom the next day, and I was like, mommy, he says that he's my dad. And my mom's like, he's crazy. Stay away from him. Don't listen to him. Why do you always go and sit with him? Stay away from him. So I'm like, okay. And then I come back to the U.S., and I tell my dad this happened with my uncle, and my dad's like, look at your passport. Whose last name is that? And I'm like, yours? He's like, that's right. So I want you to forget that this ever happened. Okay, forget him. So I'm like, okay, I will. But then we go back to Pakistan again. And every time we would leave, there'd be these weird fights between my mom, Hannah, and my aunt, Sheila. And this time, this fight escalated, and both of them start grabbing my arms. And one's pulling this way, and the other's pulling that way. She's my daughter. No, she's my daughter. No, she's my daughter. And I'm just getting like, what's happening? I remember telling the servant, because everybody has servants there, I was like, they don't have a daughter, they have three sons, so they want me. Isn't that strange? And the servant just said, hmm. And then we left Pakistan early that year. We came back, and my mom said, we're not going to go back again. And I was like, good. And then next year, I'm 11 years old, and I'm about to put on my jacket and go for a ride around the cul-de-sac in our neighborhood. And I overhear my parents talking and arguing in the kitchen, and I hear something about adoption. She was adopted, and her parents, and adoption. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Are you saying what I think you're saying? And they both kind of stopped and looked at me. And I remember my stomach just falling, and I got on my bike, and I rode around the neighborhood, and I was like, it's true. They adopted me. 
So a little bit of backstory. My mothers are both sisters. My mommy, my mom, Hannah, came here in 1970 as a young bride, married my dad, Avzal, who was a student at the University of Pennsylvania. They were trying to have a baby and they couldn't. My mom told her family that it was her fault. She was barren, but it was actually my dad's fault. She wanted to protect him, so she didn't tell. So her younger sister, Sheila, promised her, the first baby I ever have, I'm going to give her or him to you. Sheila gets married, has the first child, gets a boy. And the whole family's like, no, 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 you can't give a boy away because you know, boys are really important in that part of the world, like inheritance and money and land. Like, boys, well, that's your only son. You can't give him away. They tell her, come back next year. We'll have another child for you, like a Big Mac. We'll deliver one. <laughs> so the next year, there's another child, and it's a girl, and that girl's me. My mom, Hannah, joyfully takes me and brings me back to the U.S. and tells everybody that I was born abroad. She doesn't even tell people, except very close family members, that I'm her sister's child. She pretends that I'm hers from the very beginning. I didn't even know. They were supposed to sit me down when I was 13 and tell me nicely, but you know, people started letting things leak out when I was seven, so that's how I found out. At this point, you would think that we're not going back to Pakistan again. Oh, no, we are. <laughs> the next year, when I'm 12... Mom and I go by ourselves. We're up in the mountains in our family home, and we're just enjoying ourselves with the whole family. And now that I know that my aunt and uncle, Sheila and Ali, are actually my birth parents, they're so nice to me. I'm having these weird thoughts like, maybe I'm a princess, and they will never make me make my bed again, and they won't make me clean my room, and I could live with them, and they would be so cool. So naturally, when my new mom slash aunt Sheila says to me, hey, we're going back to Peshawar, which is the city they're from. We're going tomorrow. We're going to be gone for about a week. We're going to go look at you know, the boys' school, and we'd love it if you would come with us. You can meet all of our friends. You can see where they go to school. You can see our house. What do you think, Shamila? Do you want to go? And I'm 12 years old. I'm like, sure. I just want to come back by the time... Baba and my brothers come from the U.S. because they were going to join us. And she's like, okay, we'll bring you back next week. So I get in the car. Off we go. We visit all these different relatives. We're all over the country. Pakistan's about the size of Texas and maybe Delaware combined or something like that. So it's not a big country. We go up and down the country visiting all of my birth father's family members. And after a while, I'm like, when are we going back? But I don't ask. And then it's mid-July. Then it's the end of July. It's the beginning of August. I'm like, when am I going back? And he looks at me and goes, you're not. And I'm like, what do you mean I'm not? He goes, you're not going back to America. You're staying here now. And I'm like, why? And he's like, because we are your parents. We are your family. And it's time for you to stay with us now. America is a bad place for a girl to grow up. They do drugs, they go to dances, they wear short skirts. You're not going to do any of that. You're going to stay here and be a proper girl. What does a 12-year-old do? And I didn't know what to do. And then he says, stop calling us uncle and auntie. From now on, we are Baba and Bibi. That's it. We're your parents. So I remember I cried so much. And one of the three brothers saw me crying and said, she's crying again. And he comes in my room and he's like, why are you crying? I already told you, they don't love you. You're like a dog to them, a pet, or like an old pair of slippers. You're not their child. You're our child. This is your rightful home. You've come back to us. And now you're going to be a 
true patriotic Pakistani daughter. We are so happy to have you. We're even going to give you a plot of land, and we're going to call it Shamila's World. Like, a 12-year-old really cares about a plot of land. So I start to bargain with them. I'm like, okay, I'll stay for one year. I'm a good girl. I'm cooperative, see? I can do a year, a study abroad early. And they're like... Okay, and then the next day he says maybe three years. And I start crying, like, no, no, three years is too long. I want to go back. Everybody's going to grow up. I need to know what's happening in my school. There's yearbooks to do and the clubs to join. And they're like, you're going to do whatever happens here. And then at some point, Bibi says, you're going to go to college here too. And I was like, no, I, I don't want to go to college here. I want to go back. And then I would cry and I would get the lecture again about they didn't love you. America is a bad place for a girl. Not a proper place. So at the end of August, Bibi comes to me one day and says, look, they left you here. They've gone back to the U.S., all four of them. You're stuck here now with us, and you're going to school next week. Part of the custody battle, part of the reason that they wanted me back is because my mom, Hannah, had eventually had two sons of her own, and that had infuriated her sister, and brother-in-law, and they were like, okay, you lied to us, you can have children, so since you had children, now we want our daughter back. And my mom would say this, I still remember her saying this, I didn't get it at the time, she'd say, she's not a ball, I can't bounce her back to you. But that's what ended up happening. When I hear that they've gone back and I'm starting school next week, I realize this is it. I am not going back. My world is catapulted away. They hand me a chadar, which is a covering, and they tell me you're going to sit on the bus and go to school, and you're going to cover your head. I'm like, okay. I love school. I love school because in school, I'm a celebrity because I've come from America. And they're like, do you know Tom Cruise? I'm like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I could say anything. I make up so many stories from so many books I read, and they thought everything was true. And the bus, it smelled of like old crunchy Cheetos. And I loved that bus ride home because we would go by these fields and see like houses and buffaloes and I just liked watching all of that from my bus window and I'm like, this is cool. But when I got home, things would get bad. They became very fixated on my weight. I had to be 140 pounds because they kept talking about my marriage someday. They were going to get me married to a top family in the country and I was going to be a very good girl and a very good-looking girl, and nobody wants to marry a fat girl. So they would lock the fridge. I was not allowed to snack. Every Friday, I was weighed in front of everyone, and if my weight was above 140, I was in big trouble. They would have the boys spy on me to see that I would not take any snacks from the fridge if the fridge happened to be open, and those boys were quick to run and be like, she stole some food, she took it, and then there was a lot of, you know, trouble. And then they told me, uh, covering your head is not enough. Now you have to cover your face when you go out. And I was a good sport about it. I would cover my face, and only my eyes could show, which was fine. But in the summer, God, it's so hot. I would be sweating buckets, and so I would hold it like this so that I, I could breathe, and then put it back on, and then take it off, and then put it back on. But that was the least of my worries. I was like, you know what, I can live with this because, you know, at least, you know, no one's staring at me if I'm covered. Bibi was the rule enforcer. Pretty soon she told me music is bad, TV is bad, movies are bad, she told me books are bad. She took everything I had from America 
the first summer I lived there, they let me go to the capital city, Islamabad, and buy a Paula Abdul and a Madonna cassette. And they quickly confiscated those two. Music is the devil's work. You can't listen to that. I remember opening up a newspaper in a magazine on Sundays, it was called the Sunday Times, just to read something. And she'd be like, only bad girls read newspapers. Put that away. At a book fair, I got a copy of Little Women. I had a friend say, happy birthday, Shamila. I stole the money from her bag. It was five rupees. And I put that inside my mattress cover, and that was the one book I had for the past six years that I lived there. I would pull it out, read it, and put it back in. She never found it. But she took everything else away. She thought my Babysitter's Club books were beyond ridiculous. And I couldn't explain it to her, what it was about. If she saw me sitting idly, she would tell me, get up, girl. Go start cooking. Go and learn some chores, because when you're married, this is what you're going to have to do. One day, I was so bored, I opened up an encyclopedia and started reading about the solar system. I think I was in eighth grade, because I was just like, I need to read something. And she came home from the market, and she said, what are you reading? I said, the solar system. And she says, come here, come here. This book is this big. Your brain is this big. There's no way you can absorb that information. So I'm kindly telling you to put it away and go to the kitchen and peel the carrots and the onions because we're going to teach you how to make egg rolls today. I knew she was wrong, but there was nothing I could say. At the end of eighth grade, I came home and found a bonfire in the backyard. All my photos, all the letters from my teachers and my friends in the U.S., all my books, the stories that I had written, the essays I had written, everything was being burnt away, and they made me stand there and watch it. And like, this is what happens to girls who are bad. So give up on all these ideas and come back to being a good girl, a proper girl. The quest to make me proper never ended. I don't even know what the proper girl looks like, but they had a vision and they were determined to make me into it. I like to explain things, so I try to explain, but you know, this is what I'm thinking and this is what I'm feeling, and very quickly I realized that that's going to get me hit. Don't remember the first time I got hit, but when I was around 13 it started, and I still remember me trying to explain something very earnestly and being slapped or being hit or being punched. I remember being kicked, and I remember trying to sneak into their room and make a phone call to a friend to ask her what I should do about something and finding out, and the punishment for that was a golf club on my back. I couldn't move for the day after, but 15-year-old bodies heal really fast. So I was able to move again, and I would think, okay, well, this happened, but it won't ever happen again. Except it kept happening. My Baba was so unpredictable. One minute he would say, you're my lovely daughter, I'm so happy you're back, I love you so much, and the next minute I would just be saying something, and suddenly the floodgates would open. In the six years I lived there, they never called me by my name. They did not like the name Shamila. They wanted to change it. That's the one thing I refused. I said over and over, you're not going to change my name. So they started calling me the word Janae, which means girl. So it was always girl on a good day. On a bad day, it was crazy girl, lazy girl, whore, you name it. That was me. I would get in trouble for praying at the wrong time. I got pulled off the prayer mat by my hair and yanked off because I prayed at the wrong time. After all this happened, one day I remember being on the bus and looking at this boy, and he had green eyes and a little goatee, and he was really cute. So I wrote this letter to a friend about him, and she caught me, and she found the letter. 
And she raised this squeegee to hit me really hard, except by mistake, it cut through my face, and my face tore open. And I didn't know what happened at the time, but I saw one drop, two drops, three drops, and this blood starts coming. And she's like, oh my God, oh my God. And then she's helping me wash my face, and she said, you have such a big tongue, if you would just keep quiet, none of this would have ever happened. Your tongue is a yard long. If you would just keep your tongue quiet, none of this would ever happen. 16 microscopic stitches later, they fixed this face. And every time I would put a mark on the calendar, I'd be like, this will never happen to me again. And when it would happen, I'd be like, just have to try harder. Just have to try harder. And then it will never happen to me again. This went on for six years. And as I got older, and the marriage chances got closer, and the idea of putting me out in society, kind of like a debut from the 1800s, kept creeping up, it got worse and worse and worse. And there was no escape for me besides my book in the mattress and my writing. I would go in the bathroom, lock the door. During the afternoon siesta when everyone was sleeping, it was really hot. But I would write stories and poems and letters on a piece of paper, and they have fountain pens there, so I'd wash off the ink with the hose, crumple up the paper, and throw it out the window so that no one would catch me and punish me. Of course, they had no idea what I was doing there. They'd start banging at some point. What are you doing in there? What's happening in there? And I'd come out and be like, nothing. Just washing my face. My friends were the things that also helped me get through, and I learned how to have really good friends. And one of my friends had an older brother who was very cute, and she would tell me about him and tell me stories and be like, someday you can get married to him. And I kind of fell in this like story, like, yeah, someday I will marry him. And so she was like, you should tell your parents that you want to get married to him. I knew better than that. I didn't really say it. But eventually, they asked me, you've been acting different lately. Is there something going on? And I said, I like someone. And that was the worst punishment I ever got. So I'm 18 years old. The worst is yet to come. One night, I'm just sleeping. And I feel a hand on my face. So I shh. It was my oldest brother. And I don't want to go into it after that. But that went on for a long time afterwards. I'm pulled out of school. They decide she needs to get married because she's going to get out of control and we have to marry her off fast. So one morning in July, I'm making roti, which is bread, for breakfast. And I bring it to Baba and he says, it's lopsided. You crazy, lazy girl. It's lopsided, good for nothing. You can't even make bread right. Go to your room and stay there. Think about what you've done. So I go to my room, and they kept the door open because they had to watch me at all times. I'm thinking, okay. I don't know what to do anymore. I give up. So I put out the prayer mat. It's not even time to pray. And I just start praying over and over. I'm like, oh, God, please make my life useful. Please make my life useful. Please make my life useful. It's like a trance. I keep praying over and over, and the ceiling fan's going, and it's really hot, and I'm just praying over and over. Please make my life useful. Please make my life useful. I can't live like this anymore. The very next day, my grandfather, Babaji, says, you know, I was thinking about it. I'm going to go to Bethesda and visit my other daughter. And I heard the word Bethesda and something registered in my brain, but like, kind of like an imaginary faraway place I just read about once. I'm like, oh yeah, Bethesda. And suddenly, out of nowhere, Bibi says, take this girl with you. And I'm like, wait, what? And she's like, take this girl with you. Now, the year before, they had talked about me going, but then changed their minds. So I was like, this is just, you know, she's talking. But then they call 
my dad in the U.S., and for the first time in six years, they hand me the phone. They're like, talk to him, ask him to buy you a ticket. So I get on the phone, I'm like, dad? And he's like, Shamila, is that you? And I'm amazed at what it sounds like to hear my voice being spoken, my name being spoken. I, I didn't know what to do. I'm just savoring that moment. And then finally I say, yeah, it's me. Buy me a ticket. They want me to come home. So then everything moves so fast. There's like passports and visas and applications and going to the capital city and trying to get in the embassy and a chaperone, of course, because I can't be trusted to fly alone because God knows what I'll do in the plane. So I have to have a chaperone. Finally, all of that is done. And I keep thinking, they tried to take away everything from me, but they couldn't take away my faith, and they couldn't take away my mind, and they couldn't take away my writing, and they can't take away the fact that I still have hope. So I got on that plane, and as it took off, I started crying, because even though they said this is a pre-wedding vacation, I knew that I was not going to come back for a very, very, very long time, and I was going to miss parts of it. Parts of it were beautiful, parts of it were good, parts of it were my home. So I arrived back at JFK on July 4th, 1996, Independence Day. Will Smith movie came out that day too. <laughs> and I had a long braid and a heavy accent, and my dad and my brother came up from here to pick me up. And I'm looking at my youngest brother, who's now in middle school, and I'm like, how are you? And he says, I'm good. And I'm like, good? I didn't ask him if he's a good boy or a bad boy. Why is he saying he's good? Why doesn't he say, I'm fine, thank you? So there was a lot to learn. I still have the outfit that I came in. It's in a suitcase. 20 years later, I'm a social worker and a therapist. I've worked in Baltimore City in child welfare. I've worked in Austin, Texas. I've done work with community education. I teach a class at Montgomery College in Germantown, Maryland. And I have a private practice where I see individuals, couples, and groups. And I try to help people understand about abuse and neglect. And I try to help people understand that bad things do happen to us, but there's a Maybe a reason, maybe not, but there's something to look forward to. There's hope. There's something good that can come, something to look up to. These days, my life is very, very useful. So it's taken me 20 years to get to this place to stand here before you today, but here I am. Thank you. Kisses a summer face Anywhere means we're running We can sleep and see them coming Where we drift and call it dreaming We can weep and call it singing Where we pray when our hearts are strong enough We can bow Cause our music's warmer than blood Where we see enough to follow We can hear when we are hollow Where we keep the light we're given We can lose and call it living Where the sun isn't only sinking fast 
Every night he knows how long it's supposed to last Where the time of our lives is all we have And we get a chance to say Before we ease away For all the love you've left behind You can have mine That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Iron and Wine behind me now. And we just heard from Shamila. Oh my goodness, what a story and what an honor it is for us when storytellers like Shamila share with us the way that they do. Well, listen, if you love what we do here at Risk and you would like to help us out, a wonderful way to do that and to become more of a part of the risk community is to join us at patreon.com slash risk. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash risk. You can become a patron of ours for a dollar a month, five dollars, ten dollars, twenty-five, whatever it is. There are lots of perks there. There's lots of bonus stories ad-free episodes. A lot of our old all-star episodes or the first couple of seasons have been remastered and you can get those there. And you know, it's a huge, huge help to keep this whole thing running. If you become a patron of ours at patreon.com slash risk. Now I'm going to read to you where risk is appearing live next on December 2nd. We are in Phoenix, Arizona for the first time ever. Risk is coming to Phoenix on December 2nd at the Valley Bar. So come on out and see us, Phoenix. On December 16th, we are back in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. And the theme that night is the holidays. Those are always fun shows, our late December shows. December 16th at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. On December 19th, we're back in Brooklyn at Littlefield. That's our holidays show in Brooklyn on December 19. On January 20th, look for us at the Swedish American Hall. That's all a part of the San Francisco Sketch Fest. We're going to have Guy Branham, Dana Gould, Biz Ellis, and Marcella Arguello are all going to be doing that January 20th San Francisco show for Sketch Fest. And listen, folks, it's gift-giving season, and nothing makes a better gift than storytelling lessons. You can go to thestorystudio.org, and right there at the top of the homepage, you'll see you can click to get Story Studio gift certificates or or any of that sort of thing to get one-on-one lessons for your friends or, or get them into a, an in-person workshop in New York or Los Angeles or Minneapolis. All sorts of wonderful opportunities to give at thestorystudio.org. All right. Well... We made it through to another Thanksgiving, my friends, and we are so, so very grateful for all of you. So happy Thanksgiving, everyone. And remember, today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs>